0: Hello and welcome to the Giant Splash. I'm Henry Shulman, Giants beat reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. My guest today is my counterpart at the San Jose Mercury News, Kerry Crowley. Just 26 years old, Crowley has already established himself as one of the nation's best and most versatile baseball writers and multimedia reporters. He's talented, tireless, and most of all, he respects his elders. We're going to talk to Kerry about his Hall of Fame high school football career at St. Ignatius, why baseball writing was not his first choice, and covering the team he rooted for as a kid and as a native and sixth-generation San Franciscan. Well, hello, Kerry. How are you
1: doing? We're one week into the baseball season. Are you ready to give it up yet? (laughs) I'm not ready to give it up yet, Henry. I missed it so dearly, and I know that... It's probably not advisable that we should be doing this, that we should be covering baseball as if it's normal. But I just love getting out to the ballpark right now. It is so refreshing to go out there and leave the house right now that if I'm able to do it safely and in a mask, I I can't pass up the opportunity.
0: Okay, well, that makes one of us. Uh, No, I'm just I'm just kidding. so, like, uh, I want to start off by just getting a little bit about your background. Uh, first of all, I, it just strikes me when I look at your bio on the, uh, the Mercury News page, you know, like at the end of one of your stories, it says um, that you are a multimedia reporter for the, um, for the Mercury News and the, you know, for the Bay Area News Group and all that. And, and this is obviously something that in my era we would never have. I mean, I have become a multimedia reporter, but the one difference is when I went to school, you didn't learn anything but <clears throat> how to write and how to type, you know, and how to ask questions maybe. Um, you went to that, uh, that little school down there in the desert. What was that called? <laughs> what was it called? Oh, ASU, yeah. ASU. Um, I imagine that your upbringing at ASU was a lot different than mine. I mean, when you talk about multimedia, what, what is it that you train for there?
1: Well, for starters, Henry, I actually did not major in print journalism, which was an option when I signed up to attend the Cronkite School at Arizona State. I majored in broadcast journalism because I wanted to go on to television. I wanted to pursue a career in uh, TV as a sports anchor or as a play-by-play voice. That was my dream growing up. I always wanted to be the next John Miller, Dave Fleming, or Dwayne Kuiper. And by the time I was all set to graduate and get my degree, get my bachelor's and master's, uh, I quickly learned that I was not a very sought-after candidate in the world <laughs> of broadcasting and that the writing internships that I did on the side to kind of pay the bills in college were going to be my better bet to a career in sports journalism. And so I was definitely trained in terms of videography and shooting sequences, shooting stand-ups, all sorts of different things like that. And and play-by-play was really my passion when I was at school. So my formal written education came completely on the side from the internships that I did. And it was kind of funny how I ended up uh, pursuing a career in sports writing after uh, spending four years and, and a considerable amount of money trying to go into television.
0: Yeah, and you know, you—I mean—you do a podcast every day now. Which, uh, by the way, stop it. Just, just <laughs> stop it. Um, you know, recapping the, the game the night before. And if you listen to it, it's almost done like a sportscast, where you're talking and then you cut into the audio from the, um, you know, from the the zooms that we do with the players and the manager. I I would imagine that learning how to edit edit uh, video
1: and audio when you were in college probably helps you in that regard, does it not? Yeah, it it was critical to understand how to do that because I'm producing and putting the entire podcast together, cutting all the audio clips, and then splicing things together with a written script. So uh, understanding how to work programs like Adobe Rush, Adobe Audition, Adobe Premiere is kind of foundational in being able to do this for me because we just don't have the resources to do a daily podcast. So if it was something that I wanted to do, I had to do it all on my own. And it's working out so far, Henry. But I will tell you, when I was finishing recording Wednesday evening episode that went live on Thursday at uh, 5 a.m. I finished up around 1 a.m., and I was really wondering what the heck I got myself into.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, now you're committed (laughs) for the rest of your career. I mean, that's that's the problem now. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, you just explained all of the different programs that you use, and what I heard was blah, 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 but I'm sure that some of our younger listeners to this podcast will know exactly what you're talking about. And I marvel. I mean, even at the, we, we hire, I mean, the people we hire now are our multimedia reporters, especially for the gate. Uh, well, not just for the gate. I mean, for the online portion uh, of our, our website, you know, we have online only only reporters and they better have video and audio experience coming in. Now, going back to your broadcasting career, it's probably a little known fact because you don't advertise it very often, but you did do some play by play in baseball or at
1: least some color work um, back East. Did you not? Yeah, I was the play-by-play voice of the Born Braves in the Cape Cod Baseball League for two summers, and Giants fans might be familiar because I'm sure they've read your stories, Andy Baggerly's stories, Alex Pavlovich's stories, and... and- uh, plenty of others who have written about all the Giants draftees who came out of the Cape Cod Baseball League. Buster Posey, Joe Panic, Brandon Crawford, Brandon Belt, Tim Linscombe. They all spent their summers there before they got drafted. And so it, it really gave me an opportunity uh, to ingrain myself in the baseball community to get a handle on play-by-play broadcasting. And, and it was incredible because I look across the major leagues now, Henry, and the first base platoon that my born Braves team was using back in 2015, was the left-handed hitter was Brennan McKay, who's now pitching and playing first base for the Tampa Bay Rays as a two-way player. And the right-handed hitting first baseman was Pete Alonso, who was the Rookie of the Year in 2019. And so five years ago, I was going out to elementary school fields or high school fields and calling play-by-play for no one with no fans in the stands and watching these guys uh, tear it up and ultimately become a million-dollar bonus guys. Right. And, uh, you know, of
0: course, uh, the scouts love to go see the wooden bat leagues. They have them in the Midwest. They have it in they have one in, in uh, Anchorage, Alaska, in Alaska, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, these guys are all hitting with uh, metal bats and you can learn different things by watching them hit on uh wood bats. Now, uh, you have been doing fill in work at KNBR. Uh, so you're keeping up some of your, um, you know your audio skills. Uh, I mean, do you still have a, a dream at some point to maybe do television or radio on a full-time basis?
1: Oh, I think absolutely. that That would be my goal is to somehow do writing and radio or TV at the same time. I'd love to be able to cut back a little bit on writing and do a little bit more multimedia and cover Bay Area sports and the entire Bay Area sports scene like that, but right now I I just feel so fortunate to be filling in at KMBR on a uh, part-time basis. I'm actually doing Friday morning show at 5 a.m., so uh, the listeners uh, on uh, Friday morning will be treated, if, if there are any, at that time of day, so... Uh, I've really enjoyed it and it's just a passion of mine to be able to talk about sports and and to do it in the the area where I grew up because quite frankly Henry I I don't think that I would feel comfortable going into another market and talking about the local teams because I don't know their history and and you can learn it but you didn't grow up with it And, and that's what gives me in my opinion, a little bit of an advantage here in the Bay Area is I was born and bred in San Francisco. I grew up reading your stories in the Chronicle, John Shea's stories in the Chronicle. Bruce Jenkins and Scott Ossler were two of my favorite writers. And so to have that kind of foundational background w- was really critical for me to have, have the confidence to do this.
0: And I'm saying that I, I believe you're succeeding in spite of reading my article <laughs> Yeah, I was going to ask you about your your upbringing a little bit. Now, uh, <clears throat> you know, you're 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 from a San Francisco family, obviously. Uh, tell us about your all-state uh, career as a defensive back at San Ignatius <laughs> High School.
1: <laughs> well, my career as a defensive back didn't last very long because I, I started there one game my junior year, a uh, first varsity start. Ended up having an interception, but the other team also realized that uh, if they attacked me on every play, their chances of scoring absolutely skyrocketed to an exponential degree and so I moved over to the offensive side of the ball for my senior year and started at running back and we were okay we went three six and one in the regular season and in high school you get into the postseason based on your strength of schedule and so We played a really tough schedule. We got in as the seven seed. I got hurt, and that was pretty much the best thing that ever happened to my team is when I went down, (laughs) we installed my current roommate uh, as our new running back. He was the fullback at the time, ended up playing in college as a running back. And he outrushed me uh, in my 10 games in the three games that he started in the playoffs. Absolutely historic performance for him. Our our championship game was actually against Sacred Heart Cathedral at Oracle Park in 2011, the only high school football game ever played at Oracle Park. So I won a uh, trophy there. And in 2011, I had as many championships there as Buster Posey did.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, did, uh, did you get to play in the game at Oracle Park?
1: I did not. I went out for the captain's coin toss because I was well trained in determining that we always wanted to defer going into the oh. second half, and, and that was something that was uh, lost on a lot of players. But it was not lost on me. So it, it's funny. I, you know, I don't know if you know Bonte Hill, but he's a commentator at 95-7 uh, The Game, and he was covering that game. And so he he did the lead up to the week for uh, for the San Francisco Chronicle. He was doing uh, some San Francisco Examiner work as well. He was stringing, and he interviewed. He came out to SI to interview the players heading into that championship game, and he interviewed me, even though I was on kind of the the physically unable to perform list, and I wasn't going to play. Exactly, but the coaches thought that I would be the best speaking representative at the time for the team, and so uh, I ended up talking with Bonte, and that kind of honestly sparked my interest in pursuing a career in in sports writing. Absolutely, yeah. We're learning stuff here
0: on the Giant Splash.
1: Yeah, Bon Bonte's the best. I mean, he 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 was so good at understanding the high school sports scene. He's a local San Francisco guy. So right. that's no surprise at all.
0: Right. Um, and uh, you separated your shoulder, I believe, is what you did. Yeah, me, right? I
1: did. I, se- I separated my shoulder. I could have gotten a cortisone shot and played, but not advisable for an 18-year-old. And as we found out, not advisable for my team, as, as we just got so much better when I was off. the
0: field. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're just too modest. Um, I, mean, how many, how <laughs> I really many don't better, know. Yeah. How many generations back does your family go in San Francisco?
1: Uh, six. I like wow. to say that on my mom's side, I think it's six. On my dad's side, it's five. I like to say that we were here before the potato famine hit Ireland. So wow. it was right around that time. Yeah, they came right to San Francisco. And uh, it, it is it has been this way in the Crowley and Hayden families since the 1850s. Yeah, I, I don't know if we were uh, Gold Rush Californians or not specifically, my mom knows the whole family history, but we have been in the city forever. So there's a lot of pressure with the the uh, raising uh, of the housing prices here to, for me to oh, yeah. stick it out and, and make yeah. it seven generations.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I don't want to, you know I don't want to get into too much of your personal life but you live like it I think in a house with 11 people out in the yeah or yeah like exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> like um,
1: I mentioned yeah, yeah yeah there's there's five of us out here in the sunset district wow, we're man, five yeah. blocks up from our high school and uh, it was the the two running backs who who live here together Yeah,
0: Wow Seamus Crowley coming around the uh, <laughs> coming around the Cape in 1827 um, well that I mean that's that's an amazing story because you really don't see a lot of sports writers. Uh, who ha- who are necessarily ingrained in the city that they're they're covered I mean uh, you, a lot of them come from other areas because they've done an internship and then and then they end up staying um, I mean aside from the fact that you grew up reading chronicle writers and examiner writers and whatnot is there anything about having grown up in the city that thinks that makes you think that um, you know, that makes you suited for doing the job that you have now
1: that's a good question. I think that just my family's history and my understanding of growing up and listening to my mom's stories of going out to Candlestick Park with her dad and watching Willie Mays and Willie McCovey and her favorite players growing up. And then my dad talking about, you know, Jerry Rice, Joe Montana, Bill Walsh. I, Understanding that history before I was born really gave me an interest in that. But, but the thing that I always go back to that gives me such an advantage around here is really having an intricate knowledge of the Muni system. Because <laughs> my mom would put me on the uh, the El Teravel when I was growing up at 10 years old. She'd give me and uh, a friend a ticket to the game when no parents are, are giving their, their kids that type of a freedom. But I loved getting on Muni. I, I was obsessed with public transportation when I was a kid, and, and I still somewhat am to this day and she would put us on muni we'd go to the ballpark we'd sit in the bleachers and watch the game and then we'd come home and, and they'd pick us up from west portal station at ten forty five or 11.
0: Yeah you know I mean I talked to your mom once. she told me that she kept giving you one-way tickets to the ballpark but you
1: <laughs> didn't get that hint.
0: Um, Yeah. yeah. Uh, before we go to break here do you, do you remember your first uh, Giants game uh, like a, the year and what happened?
1: I do. It was June eleventh, 2000, the day after my sixth birthday, Sean Estes pitched, and he pitched in an interleague game against the Seattle Mariners, and he got shelled. And I informed Sean Estes this last year when I was talking to him pregame at Wrigley, Wrigley Field. We were just, you know, sharing stories about how I got into this and his thoughts on broadcasting. I said, you know, you actually pitched in the first game I ever attended. And he goes, well, how'd I do? And I said, well, you were just awful. I mean, you made it really hard to root for you. And I think that uh, he had a pretty good sense of humor about that.
0: He, he does. So if I'm doing my math, correct. If you were six in 2000, that would make you 16 now, right? Oh, wait, no, Yeah, exactly. 26. 26. <laughs> okay. Well uh, we're going to talk uh, about the giants. Now that we've got your history uh, and we're going to talk about the first week of the giant season. And we'll get there right after this. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy.
1: What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes!
0: Henry Shulman here from the San Francisco Chronicle on the Giants splash with Mercury News, Giants beat writer, uh, KNBR voice part time, Carrie Crowley. Uh, we're recording this uh, probably about uh, well about thirteen hours after Mike Estremski put one in the water to win the game. Uh, I was not able to get out to the park last night. I did watch the game, um, and I, I'm just wondering, first of all, what was it like watching a walk off homer at home?
1: Uh, obviously, a walk off homer with nobody in the stands. Totally bizarre. Totally bizarre. I I won't get over that scene, Henry, from Wednesday night, because we were both at Dodger Stadium last Thursday for for the first – game of the 2020 season. There were no fans. We knew it was going to be weird. And I still thought that there was somewhat of an energy in the air that night. Maybe it was, uh, you know, just the nostalgia for me of baseball coming back. Maybe it was the way the Dodgers were piping in the crowd noise a little louder. But I did feel like there was a little bit more energy, a little bit more intensity and life to that game. And so you get to the ninth inning on Wednesday night at Oracle Park. And the fog's rolling in. You don't feel like anyone's going to be able to knock one out of there. And then Mike Yastrzemski elevates and celebrates. And it was incredible to see the Giants pour out of the dugout and do their socially distant celebration and walk off the field. And that was it. You know, there's usually that that fans hang in the stands. There's the extended celebration. There's the on-field interview with Amy G. There was none of that on Wednesday night. And, and I don't know that I can completely – Capture that scene, or, or I don't know that it has sunk in yet. That uh, this is the reality.
0: Hold on a second. I didn't hear anything you said. Elevate and celebrate. <laughs> yeah, it just, it did, it did seem weird. So, um, as we record this again, they're three and three, having split four games in Los Angeles and splitting the first two games against the Padres. Um, is there anything you've seen in the first six games, which is now, which is, you know, one tenth of the season? that leads you to believe that they could be one of the 16
1: teams that makes it into the postseason. That's a tough question because for, I would say 80% to 90% of these six games. And I know we're dealing with a really small sample size, but, For the vast majority of these games, I thought they've looked lost. You know, there were two games in Los Angeles where they didn't look ready. They came and got boat raced by the Padres, even though it was a 5-3 game. They never had a chance, it felt like, on Tuesday night. And then for so much of Wednesday night, it felt like it was going to follow the same script. But, Henry, this team has showed pretty impressive resilience to come back and win the final two games against L.A. after back-to-back blowouts and to have that late comeback win with Donovan Solano hitting the three-run home run. That was so improbable on Wednesday night for Solano to go deep at Oracle Park. So the fact that they've showed resilience during the first week of the season does lead me to believe that this team can weather a, a storm, and the first-half schedule is really daunting. It's really difficult. This next road trip uh, could make or break their chances, to be quite honest with you. but Ten games, right? Yeah, exactly. But But the fact that they've showed this resilience is a sign that – They, you know, at least have to still be in consideration for one of those 16 spots, and it's way too soon to write them off. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to make
0: a statement, and you tell me whether you agree with it. The strength of this team in 2020 is going to be its bullpen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I agree with that. And seven days ago, I would have completely disagreed with that, but there are a lot of young unproven and fearless arms in that bullpen. And these guys are tough. And when they're being used in in small opportunities to get three to six outs at a time, when many of these guys were former starting pitchers, I think that they're well-suited to match up with some of the rosters that they're up against.
0: Yeah. Uh, And, you know, I, I think personally too the rotation, once it sorts out, has a chance, maybe not to be a top echelon rotation, but, uh, you know, I mean, not, not the worst either, uh, because Gossman and uh, Smiley, who are both going to end up starting, I believe, uh, I mean, they're, they, they, seem to, they seem to be pretty good. They seem to have an idea, and they both also seem to be guys who could benefit from pitching here. I think Samarja uh, getting him on track the way he was last year is going to be, you know, interesting. And, boy, Tyler Anderson last night, kind of showed that, uh, you know, he maybe and, and Kepler talked about it, that, uh, you know, th- these guys are trying to prove they belong in the rotation, and then an outing like Tyler Anderson's last night kind of lets you know that he might have a shot. I mean, you you think we could see a rotation? I mean, it's my view anyway. Uh, you know, Quato, uh, Gaussman, uh,
1: Smiley, Samarja, and Anderson before a couple of weeks are out? I also would add Logan Webb to that mix because I think that by the end of the season, Logan Webb has the potential to be the Giants' best pitcher. I really believe his stuff is that good. But you're right about these guys in the newcomers, in Gossman, Smiley, and Anderson. Smiley looks much more like the 2000. 13 2014 version of himself than he did in 2017, 2018. Well, he didn't pitch in those seasons in 2019 when he came back from injury. And Gossman, he's got the electric fastball. If the split can land for strikes, he can be good on any given night. And Anderson really impressed me on Wednesday night because he had the rough outing in Los Angeles. I just didn't think he looked quite ready to face the Dodgers, but he, he carved up that Padres lineup. He's so good with runners on base. I mean, that pickoff move is elite. And I, I do think that if they're facing the lineup two times through, and if they are limited to four or five innings at a time, and you turn things over to the bullpen, then this starting staff can be affected. If you're trying to get more out of them, I'm not sure that's going to work, but that's not Gabe Kapler's philosophy anyway.
0: Yeah, did you, like, did you like Coito's reaction? I mean, uh, we, we had him on the Zoom. So you can actually see his body language before I, you know, before I finished asking the question in English, before Irwin even translated it, when I said, you know, how do you feel about this new thing where you don't face two times through the – more than twice through the lineup? And
1: he started doing things with his head. Like he didn't like, you're really
0: asking me this?
1: <laughs> Watching Johnny Cueto on Zoom is an absolute treat. And it reminds me, I need to cut up some videos of, of Johnny Cueto on Zoom. Because I know. not only does he understand every question in English extremely well, he can also respond in English if he chose right. to. He's, he's, right. he's, he's kind of mastered the language. And so it's funny that he still uses the translator. And I appreciate it because it's precise. But Johnny Cueto, yeah, I, I think that uh, the whole Concept of throwing four to five innings at a time and only facing a lineup twice is something that he's struggling to wrap his brain around, and you could tell from the the score room on the Zoom call that squirm, it wasn't necessarily something that uh, that he agreed with. Uh, yeah. Um,
0: so, have you gotten any Joey Bart questions at all?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that uh, every five minutes there's a new Joey Bart question, Henry. Uh, what what is the the Joey Bart question that's on your mind?
0: Well, the Joey Park question on my mind is, how do I keep answering the same question you know, over and over and over when the team is never, ever going to admit that this is a service time thing? And you know absolutely that this is a service time thing. But you saw Chadwick Trump last night. Now, he didn't get a hit. And maybe it's harder to see in person when you're sitting behind them. But from my view on television, I thought he did a really good job behind the plate. Uh, you know, whereas, Ty- whereas Tyler Heineman may have been giving strikes away, I thought Chadwick Trump actually bought a few strikes. Uh, he could be a little quieter back there. But, but the point I'm trying to make is that the way Trump caught last night and the way uh, Heinemann has been hitting, uh, and, and I, I realized that in four hours, this could be obsolete because they, <laughs> they could make the move and bring them up because they're past the service time um, key moment. But they really don't seem like they're under a lot of pressure. Do you think, agree, that they're not really under a lot of pressure right now based on on Heinemann and Trump to get them up here?
1: Yeah, I I don't think that it's a decision that has to be made today, tomorrow, or even by Sunday. I think that they can let Joey Bart take a few more at-bats in the minor leagues and see a little bit more what they have in Chadwick-Trump. Because I agree with you, Henry. I actually had the TV broadcast pulled up in the press box last night so that I could see what Trump looks like behind the plate. And he was easily the best defensive catcher of the trio we've seen so far, in my opinion. I mean, he really did look like he had a knack Framing pitches that were on the edges of the strike zone. And I didn't expect that because all we've heard so far with Trump is his bat is what's going to carry him potentially to the major leagues and potentially to a part time role. And so that was a pleasant surprise for the Giants. But with the way that Heinemann's been hitting, with the way that they want to see Trump behind the plate, I just think that, you know, you go ahead with those guys. And then four days from now, if you're not getting it, then you pull the plug and you go with Joey Bart for the rest of the year. But uh, I, I think that they're not under the same type of pressure that they were entering the season that they are right now right um and you know uh
0: somebody on twitter yesterday uh said that uh while all of us beat writers are are good uh that you're (laughs) you're you're his guy because you know you need a you need a a voice for the young generation and you're going to be the guy for for 20 years and you know what he's not wrong uh I mean because the rest of us beat writers are uh you know I mean we could still bring it but I mean our time is short uh, probably, uh, and and I'm just thinking about you. Perhaps in five years from now, watching a Giants team with uh, Patrick Bailey behind the plate, Joey Bart at first base, Marco Luciano, uh, Elliot Ramos, guys who aren't even in the organization yet, uh, who who they might sign internationally or draft high, uh, kind of making up the core of the next contending team of the Giants. Um, I'm just wondering if that excites you and if you'll be around long enough to cover that team.
1: <laughs> I think you'd have to ask the local employers if I'll be around <laughs> long enough to cover this team yeah. because, you know, every, every day I, I think, uh, you know, there's uncertainty surrounding jobs in the media landscape. And so I never like to get ahead of myself. It's, it's honestly one of the reasons I really try and do so many different things. It's why right. I try to podcast. It's why I try to do a newsletter, that sort of thing, just to, because if you're not adding value, you're going to be the first person person that uh, that gets the axe when these hard decisions come, and hard decisions have been coming in the media industry for ten to fifteen years and and longer than that, and they 're going to continue to come and so it 's depressing in one way that you have to you know wake up at seven a m and write a story after getting home at midnight, but at the same time, I also feel energized by it because I really do love watching baseball I love covering baseball and and I love covering it in my home market i I, I love being around people who have followed the team forever and who have long-term perspectives of the giants organization. And so when they see that, uh, you know, the giants maybe didn't put their, their most competitive roster on the field, in 2020 by keeping Joey Bart out, they're not afraid to call it out because they feel like as longtime fans of the team, uh, they're owed a competitive product and they they can say what they want. And I really do appreciate all the back and forth we have with people on social media, even though some of it uh, tends to devolve sometimes.
0: Yeah, usually from me. Um, <laughs> so, um, so just last question here for you. You might have to think about this one for a minute because it's something all every one of us who's ever covered, uh, professional sport probably has has thought about uh, who is the one person player, uh, coach, personality, or whatever. Uh, when you when you finally met them, because of your uh, role, you know, you're finally able to meet them. You, you kind of were a little in awe. Is there is there one person you can think of?
1: Yeah, I was Tim Lincecum. Uh, really? Meeting okay. Tim Lincecum at the 2019 Bruce Bochy send-off. Uh, I got to shake his hand and I, I got to have a conversation with him about uh you know him coming up and and me listening to his starts for Triple-A Fresno. I actually remember sitting around the the computer and listening to the audio stream of Lincecum pitching for Triple-A Fresno against the T- Tacoma Rainiers. And uh he you know he he went back and forth with me. He had a great story about his time in Fresno and uh, Tim Lincecum for me was that guy. I'll I'll always be in awe of someone who looked like the common man going out to the the mound and just dominating major league hitters. And so I I really feel like I I haven't had too many of those experiences, but Lincecum without a doubt was the answer.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, mine was Ted Sizemore. So I think you win. (laughs) Um, <laughs> you'll have, you'll have to Google that one.
1: Um, I will. Oh, listen, I will. You will. Okay.
0: Thank you. Uh, Billy Grobarkowicz. Anyway, uh, thank you for joining me, Carrie on the giant splash. And I think I can tell the listeners here that this is going to be a little reciprocation because then mm-hmm. I'm going to go on your podcast. I'm going to get to answer the questions you get to ask. Uh, and I think this has been a lot of fun and I look forward to uh, seeing you next time at the ballpark.
1: Well, in typical Henry Shulman uh, fashion, I think this will be posted on the Chronicle website ahead of uh, my podcast (laughs) on the Mercury News website. So I appreciate
0: it, Henry. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening. John Shea and I will have many more Giant Splash podcasts during this strange and short 2020 season. The Giant Splash is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Podcast producers are King Kaufman and Alan Johnson. The theme song, Batter Up, was written and performed by Lauren Gold and Ray Eastless. Support The Splash and all of our great journalism by signing up for a Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com pod.